Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Lord's Prayer. We've been working with this Lord's Prayer for a few weeks now, and the prayer that connects us maybe in as many ways as any prayer that the church prays. Um, I say maybe, maybe the Apostles' Creed stretches across more arms of the church, but I kind of doubt it because if you're raised in church environments like I was, we never recited the Apostles' Creed, but we did pray the Lord's Prayer once in a while. So I think maybe the most far-reaching prayer ever recorded in the history of man is probably the Lord's Prayer. Well, if that was it, that'd be enough to talk about because anything that has that kind of longevity and lasting power is worth examining. Um, but that's not just it, that the fact that a bunch of people pray it. Um, what, to me, the heartbeat of this prayer is the fact that it falls in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has already given the front half of the sermon, transitions into what will be the back half of the sermon. And if it's in the center, maybe it's the centerpiece. Maybe it's the heartbeat. And I'm starting to believe that more and more because what Christ is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount is not easy to implement. I mean, if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, if you've paid attention these first couple months of walking through this, it's not all sunshine and roses and lollipops. Uh, there's some tough stuff that goes on in the Sermon on the Mount. So then you get into this prayer, this moment where Jesus stops, centers himself, reflects, gives you the words to say. If there's no other impetus that tells you you ought to pray, it is that Jesus did. If Jesus prayed, well, who am I to skip it? So that prayer becomes vital. Tonight is the famous thy kingdom come, thy will be done passage. Before we read that from Matthew 6, I want to talk a little bit about the kingdom. This little thought's been on my mind all day. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel tonight, okay? We've talked about the kingdom a lot in here. It's been a part of what we've done. I made excuses to talk about it in the Gospel of John John's not big on the kingdom as a theme, but I made, we squeezed it in a few times because how can you talk about the life of Jesus and not talk about the kingdom? We've done the Old Testament stuff. We've looked at the prophetic stuff from Daniel. We've taken the, is, the Israel mentality of kingdom and squeezed it into Jesus' lifetime. And then we've looked at the eschatological ways of viewing the kingdom. We've talked about the different ways people view the end of the world. And we've went down all of those roads. What's left to say? Well, I probably wouldn't bother if it weren't for the fact that smack dab in the center of the prayer that is smack dab in the center of the Sermon on the Mount is thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And here's the king saying it to his disciples and telling all of us to keep praying it, which means that there must have been the kingdom visible, but there must have been the kingdom to come, and that part of our responsibility is to pray for that. Well, what in the world's that look like? What did it look like to them? What should it look like to me? And, well, that to me is worth examining. For all of our talks about the kingdom and the Old Testament and the New and eschatology, let's put some boots on the ground. What's it mean then for the kingdom to come? And how am I to do anything about that? Because in reality, I don't spread the kingdom. You don't spread the kingdom. Very common for us to say, let's go out here and spread the kingdom. Kingdom's going to spread without you. Kingdom is like a seed that went into the ground and the tree grows. It's like yeast that goes into the meal and the bread rises. You can't stop it. You have no more power to stop the kingdom than you do to spread the kingdom. But you can, per I know this sounds like I'm splitting hairs, but really I'm not. You don't spread the kingdom, but you sure do participate in it. And that becomes 
the impetus for paying attention in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. So let's talk about the kingdom from Christ's point of view, and I want to start in a verse that is not in the Sermon on the Mount, but it is in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, and this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he began to preach and to say, to preach and to say. It's not only what he preaches, it's what he talks about. So it's not only what he presents when he's up in front of people at, at what will be the Sermon on the Mount in one chapter, but it's the day-to-day -day conversation of Jesus. And I don't mean it's all he talked about, but you definitely can't get around the fact that he talked about the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he preceded it with the word repent. Simple sermon. Repent, the kingdom is at hand. Repent, change your mind, change your mindset, Turn the whole thing around. It's not just add this to your knowledge. Repentance is not add new information. Repentance is change your whole mindset. We need a revival of repentance in the modern church, maybe as bad as we ever have. And no, I don't mean we need people condemned over sin and lying in the carpet and crying out to God, asking Him to forgive them. No. That's a revival of emotion or a revival of guilt or a revival of condemnation, those kind of revivals end up reviving sin. Yeah. I've seen it. You've seen it. The Apostle Paul even wrote about it. I was alive. Commandment came. Sin revived. I died. Want a sin revival? Smack people with performance and law and effort and religion and works. It'll, it'll happen. We've all lived through it. We've seen it. That's not to say that in an environment where you preach grace, people won't sin. Let's don't create something false that, both things can be true at the same time, that if you preach the law, sin's going to revive, but also that if you preach grace, someone's going to sin, of course, because never underestimate people's ability to do wrong. <laughs> never underestimate people's ability to do evil. Okay, so granted, that's out there. But I'm talking about a revival of repentance where the church is constantly motivated to change her mind. Given a picture of God, that's better. It's more loving, more precious, more lovely. So that they change their mind about God. They begin to question the ideas they have about a God who is enamored of violence, who is full of revenge, a God who looks a whole lot like a dictator who is smacking people in line to get him to do what he wants. And if that's the God you come to church to serve, your church needs a revival of repentance. Yeah. Some people need to change their mind and it needs, definitely needs to start at the front and work its way through until people start to think of God differently. Where do I get this? Well, it's the first thing Jesus said. Repent, change your mind, start thinking differently about God. Why? The kingdom is at hand. And that means it's not very far away. So Jesus believed that what he was presenting was the kingdom. So when we get to the Lord's Prayer, it sounds like this, Matthew 6, 9, and 10. In this manner, therefore, pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Did that work last week? Hope you've been dwelling on that. Good stuff to start with. And then this from verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not only poetic, it is. Not only is it great literature, but man, this is packed. Your kingdom come. We are inviting who you are and what you are to come to us. We are not waiting to go to you. Our gospel is not about going to the kingdom. Our gospel is about your kingdom come. 
Please hear that again. Was your gospel about going to the kingdom? I've had the gospel of going to the kingdom. I've had the gospel of can't wait to get out of here to get to the kingdom. I've had the gospel of here's how to get to the kingdom. But Jesus didn't say, you go to the kingdom, but rather your kingdom come to us right on the backside of that is your will be done. Jesus must have had some insight into knowing that the kingdom of God's arrival is the will of God and the will of God is the kingdom of God's arrival. So whatever isn't about the kingdom of God's arrival might not be the will of God. And so, man, do we need to know what the kingdom of God is. You got all these people going, boy, I wish I knew God's will. I wish I knew God's will. I wish I knew God's will. Tell me about the kingdom. Kingdom's a place I'm going to when I die. I know why you can't find God's will. Because as confused as you are about the kingdom, there's no wonder you're confused about the will of God. They go together. So if it's go to the kingdom, it's probably go find the will of God. If it's thy kingdom come, the more I knew about the kingdom, the more I'd know God's will. The more I'd understand what God wanted, not just for me, because this isn't all about me, but I'm part of it. So I'd know what God wants for me, but I would also have a good idea about what God wants to do on the earth. I'd have a good idea about what God wants to do in my marriage and in my home and in my sh- on my street, because as his kingdom comes, I'll see his will being done. Can't divorce those two concepts. And then this mighty, mighty last line. On the earth as it is in heaven, let what happens here be a mirror of what is already happening over there. And so let that which is good infiltrate that which is not. That's the will of God as earth becomes heaven-like. Not take us to your kingdom, get us off the earth but rather bring your kingdom, transform our earth. Don't give up on this place. You were saved for more than to give up on stuff. You were redeemed to redeem. You were redeemed to be redeemers. You are given a commission and a command because what you've been commissioned over is important to God. There is no way to overestimate the importance of this stuff to God. And believe me, I wrestle with this tension myself all the time. How do we, how do we marry the concept of what we said Sunday, which is there's the temporary and there's the eternal. There's what you see and there's what you don't. This is what you see. The kingdom is what you don't. We want what we don't. That's what we're putting our hearts into is that which we can't see The tension is how much do we long for the kingdom to come and letting go of the earth and for lack of a better term, let the earth go to hell because we're going to heaven. And do you see how that becomes a problem? And if it's our commission to take care of this place, to cultivate it, to be good stewards, then Wouldn't it make more sense that what we ought to be praying is not that we get released from the earth, but that the kingdom come and do its work in us on the earth and through us in the earth. And maybe I'm obsessed with that because I get to the end of Jonah 4 and I'm writing about Jonah. Jonah's on my mind all the time. I'm getting tired of Jonah and his whale, to be honest, but you know, I still got some stuff to learn, but you get to the end of Jonah and God's obsessed with Nineveh. 
And he says to Jonah, there's 120,000 people in that city that can't tell the difference in their right hand and their left. And then almost like a codicil that gets thrown in there oddly and almost nobody knows what to do with what God actually says is this. Am I not right to be concerned with 120,000 people that can't tell the difference in their right hand and their left and much cattle? And that's how the book ends. And you go, why does God care about the cows? And I have fought with that, wrestled with that, and worked on that. And it was as if there's been a couple moments where I could almost feel the grin of the Holy Spirit in me. It's to say, oh, I care about so much more than you are capable of understanding that I care about. And maybe in moments like this, I start to get a bit of insight. His kingdom come, his will be done on the earth as it is in heaven because the earth matters so much that God doesn't want to take the earth to heaven. He wants to bring heaven to the earth. Maybe it's also because there's much cattle. No, I know that's allegorical and that's exactly what it is. That God surely isn't in the business of making sure the cows are saved, but to give Jonah the kind of concern of a man who would actually take care of the earth he lives on, well, that sounds kind of godly. And it sure does sound like the Lord's Prayer. The kingdom come. Not me go to you. You come to me. Thy will be done. Not my will. Your will be done. What's your will look like? Looks a lot like the kingdom. Where? Right here. So let's have a revival of repentance. Because when the kingdom comes to the earth to transform me, something will happen in me. So here's some thoughts. You know me. I like to write a few thoughts down, give you something to think about with me. The kingdom was accessible. That's why Jesus said it's at hand. Otherwise, why tell people it's at hand? If it's not accessible, quit lying to people and tell them it's at hand. So the kingdom's either at hand, which means the kingdom is something you can reach out and grab, or it's not. And they didn't think it was. That's why they had to repent. Change your mind. The kingdom's not way out. The kingdom is accessible. If the kingdom was accessible, then we can view the Sermon on the Mount as the presentation of the values, the ethics, and the practices of that kingdom. It's also why the Lord's Prayer falls smack dab in the middle, like a heartbeat in the middle of that sermon. God's saying, this is what the kingdom looks like, feels like, acts like, loves like, responds like. And therefore... To really get it, we got to turn our backs on the kingdoms, the ways of the earth. We don't turn our back on the earth. But we turn our back from the ways of the earth, from that which is produced by the systems of men's kingdoms. No matter how noble and regal and royal they are, they are not the kingdom of God. No nation stands near the kingdom of God. No nation should, should share the platform with the kingdom of God or the principles of the kingdom of God because they can't. Because they are all of the earth. And so we turn our back on the systems and the ways of the earth. And as we do it, we pray and we practice. Thy kingdom come on earth as it already is in the heavens. Because that's what that really means. So my prayer then is that the kingdom come to be what it already is. And that makes the Lord's Prayer a spiritual formation prayer. Because prayer is nothing if not forming you into something else. When you pray... You are being molded. You are being fashioned. You are being formed into the person that resembles the character of Christ. 
That's part of what we're praying anyway. Lord, change me. Lord, mold me. Lord, shape me. Lord, use me. All of the things that we say, sometimes we just say them. We don't think about them. We're praying the right thing. Prayer is formation. It's making me into something else. And what's this trying to do? It's trying to form us into a people who allow the kingdom of God to come. Don't think I mean that allow the kingdom of God to come on the earth like some flood and some war and some end time event. No. Prayer forms you into the people who allow the kingdom of God to come out of us in the way we practice. Why do you think it falls in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount? Because it deals with your enemies and it deals with your persecutors and it deals with your oppressors and it deals with your empires and it cares for the mourning and the hurting and the poor and the injustice and all the stuff that's happened in the Sermon on the Mount and all the stuff that will happen in it is Jesus saying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Let the kingdom come in and out through me. I don't spread the kingdom. I participate in it. The kingdom wins if I'd have never been born. The kingdom's going to do what it's going to do. If God, if I never, if I was never blessed with life to live on this earth, the kingdom of God spreads without me. But I get blessed with life. I get to participate in the kingdom. I get to see what it would be like to have the kingdom of heaven come out in the way I treat you the way I respond to you, the way I see the world. This is the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot of kingdom moments in the Gospels. We can really only deal with so many, and that's why I open by telling you that we've really done a lot of work on these in the past. You guys probably know the titles of those sermons better than I do, but we've done kingdom work and, and, and looked into a lot. But a few I can't skip, okay? So there's a couple that I want to show you, some in, some in Matthew, some in another gospel, but there's a couple that I want to show you that I think really start to establish the reality of the kingdom in Christ's day. Let's start with in Christ's day. Because we start there, then we can move on to our day, okay? Start with his day, apostles' day, our day. Look at this one from Matthew 12. Now I'll give you a little bit of backstory here because I just didn't want to jump in at the end. I wanted you to actually see this story. In Matthew 12, 22, there was one brought to Jesus who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. This is a, this is a medical marvel and a psychological marvel. The man got the ability to speak without speech therapy. I mean, think about this. I mean, he, boom, what a healing. This is miraculous. This is the Jesus that steps outside of space and time once in a while, speeds up the process. That amazed everyone. And what is their question? Could this be the son of David? This is an interesting question because this is a very Jewish question. All right, this is a question that wouldn't mean much to us in Gentile world 2022. But in the first century, a bunch of Jew people who are steeped in Judaism and the history of the law and the prophets, to be the son of David is to be the prophesied king. It's to be the one who should sit on the throne. And that's what they're waiting for. The guy that gets rid of Caesar. They're looking for their Messiah, but they're not thinking, we think Messiah, we think save me from hell. They think Messiah, they think save me from the hell called Caesar. Save me from Rome. Save me from my oppressor. Give my land back. Give us the guy that's going to do that. And so that's what they ask. Could this be the son of David? 
When the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, which is, I don't, I, I've debated today how much time to spend here. My, the, what wins is not very much time. Okay, so just to say this, what a throw in by the Pharisees that Beelzebub's Lord of the Flies um, and is a, a, a god of foreign nations. It's a, it's a god of the nations around. It's really them trying to disconnect David from Jesus. Because if, if Beelzebub's what does it, then he's influenced more by Rome than he is by the Davidic culture. That's all I'll say there. Let's leave that alone. But Jesus knew their thoughts and he said to them, now watch this, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan were to cast out Satan, if the Hasatan were to cast out Hasatan, if the accuser was to get rid of the accuser, he is divided against himself, of course. How would his kingdom stand? Well, the answer is it wouldn't because if you, if you that's civil war. And so the way to destroy the kingdom is from within, right? That's Jesus' point. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, this is really where I'm going with this. Why well, don't want to spend too much time on the pretext? Then whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. Watch. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, and this is one of the key lines of the New Testament, by the way, then surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So you have to ask yourself, Am I doing this by the powers of Rome? Am I doing this by the powers of Satan? Or am I doing this by the Spirit of God? If I were doing it by the powers of Beelzebub or Satan, then I would be borrowing the tactics of the world. So to, I would be performing the quote-unquote miraculous through the power means of the world. What did I, t- I told you this a couple weeks ago. If you, can get what, if you can get the end result that people in the world can get, you don't need Jesus. So if the weapons of your warfare are exactly the same weapons that you would have used if you hadn't met Christ, quit including Christ in there like he's in there holding hands with you. So... If you cast it out by the power of Beelzebub, you're going to use the systems of the world. Jesus goes, I don't need the systems of the world. I'm not going to do things like Rome. I'm not going to do things like Caesar. I'm not going to do things even like your temple. I'm going to do them by the Spirit of the Lord. He goes, if you admit this is God, then the kingdoms come. So I ask you, did Jesus do what he did by the power of the Holy Spirit? Of course, there's never, you'll never go in a church in your life that will say anything but yes and amen to that. Of course he did. Then the follow-up question has to be this. Do you trust Jesus? Well, of course we do. Well, then if Jesus did this by the Spirit of God, where's the kingdom? It's upon you. It's not over in the glory land. It's not a place you go to. It's a place that has come to you manifested by the power and authority of the Spirit of God. Now, that's the words of Jesus. But let's distill that down a little bit. Jesus casts out demonic forces, and when he does, he does not declare the kingdom near. He declared the kingdom near in Matthew 4. That was his message. But when he lays hands on people and delivers them from demons, he doesn't turn and go, you want to know why I did this? Because the kingdom's near. No. Instead, the kingdom's on you. The kingdom was near. Change your mind. Look what could happen if it actually came upon you. Deliverance. Bondages could be broken. Minds could be changed. Miracles could happen. You could be set free from whatever ails you. 
in Jesus, God was beginning to reign on the earth in a brand new way. I like this last thought. This is why you can't deter determine what course to take based upon the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not the kingdom of God. Okay, you're going to run into a lot of stuff back here in the Old Testament, and you're going to struggle with it. And if you don't struggle with it, you're not taking it serious. I'm just going to be honest with you. If you don't struggle with it, you're just reading. You're not paying attention. You're just flying through it so you can check off, ooh, I read three chapters a day in, in the Old Testament. But if you pay attention, you're going to run into some problems back there. And I'm going to tell you why you're going to run into problems. Because you didn't get saved as a follower of the Old Testament. You got saved to be a follower of Jesus. And it doesn't sound like him. And so you're going to run into some stuff and go, ooh, what do I do with this? I'm going to tell you what you do with it. You wrestle with it. You pray about it. You argue with it. You elbow drop it. You let it elbow drop you. That's fine. That's being a good student of the word. But at the end of the day, you realize that the kingdom didn't show up until Jesus. So if you want to know what God looks like, fast forward and get to Jesus. You go, well, what's all this stuff back here? I can't answer what all's going on back here. I'm not told how to answer what all's going back here. But I am told that if you think what you see in Jesus is the spirit of the Lord, the kingdom's come upon you. Which tells you it isn't the kingdom until it's Jesus. And what was God wanting? The kingdom of God on the earth. This union of what heaven is with what earth could be. That's part of what Jesus is doing. Here's another one. Luke 17, 20. Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, oh, this is a good question. When will the kingdom of God come? Great question. Jesus answered. Of course he did, because Jesus isn't scared to answer. Jesus answered them, and he said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. And he literally uses the word here for Kingdom of God is not going to be like a kingdom you can see with your eyeballs. So get all of that out of your head. This is what he's saying. Get it out of your head that you're going to be able to see it like you can see Rome or see it like you can see Jerusalem. That's not the kind of kingdom we're talking about. That was your first hint that it's not supposed to be manifested in the literal as much as the spiritual. Doesn't come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there. Why won't they say, see here or see there? Because it's not with observation. If it's not with observation, you can't see here or see there. They have nothing to see. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. And there's been a lot of fight right here from Greek scholars about what this means because it's translated in you or in your midst. And there's a real argument as to what Greek inflection is being used and no one's really landed and so, is Jesus saying the kingdom's inside of you? Or is Jesus saying the kingdom's in the middle of you? Maybe the reason we can't figure it out is because we're not supposed to figure it out. Maybe we're supposed to realize that you can't hold the kingdom back. That maybe the kingdom is in our midst. And maybe if you took it serious, the kingdom would be in you. We'll leave that to Jesus. In either way, what Jesus said is the kingdom isn't something you see. The kingdom is something you're a part of. The kingdom is something that's a part of you. It infiltrates you. It takes over. That's why he gave that yeast illustration. It's like the woman that drops yeast into bread and the whole loaf. She doesn't have to put the yeast all the way through the bread. She just has to let the yeast do its job. So the kingdom doesn't have to spread in equal parts. He says, just let it do what it's going to do. 
Why does he have to address this observation bit? Put some, been, 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 been stirring this over. Because um, I've been dealing with the kingdom for years now in preaching. Didn't hear about it for a long, long time. When I was younger, the kingdom was the place you go to when you die. I never heard sermons on the kingdoms in your midst or kingdoms within you. I never heard anybody even bother to preach with, if I do this by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God's come upon you. Shoot, nobody even talked to me about what Jesus used to preach when he went in towns and preached. And yet, Matthew 4 is pretty clear. Jesus preached and said, repent, the kingdom's at hand. And if I did hear that, all I heard was, repent, someday you get to go to heaven. Come up here and repent. Kingdom's at hand. You get to go to heaven when you die. And so once I got past that, started to take Jesus serious, go, if the king's supposed to be on this, can't see it with observation, must have happened when Jesus was here, he thought it was both at hand and upon you, then I need to take serious the reality of the kingdom. Why am I not taking it serious? And you go, well, because of bad teaching or because it wasn't introduced. Very likely. Always. Better teaching would help. Better teaching would help. Absolutely. I can't blame it all on the teaching. I can't blame it all on the preaching. And besides, I've been a preacher longer than I've been preached to. So what's the excuse there? You know, how long are you going to keep hammering away at this, blaming it on what happened when you were eight? You know, I've been doing this for a while. So how about figuring something out about the kingdom? Well, a few years ago, whenever the Lord began to really speak to my heart about re-examining the last day's language of the New Testament or the end times language, the eschatological language, uh, I dug in and I, I had a lot of questions and a lot of concerns and a lot of problems and led me down a lot of roads and I landed on some things and I still don't feel like any kind of specialist at all when it comes to the last days or eschatology, but I landed enough to really round out finished work and grace in my heart to stop pitting God against grace, you know. Because that's what happens if you don't round that out, is you've got a God who's got grace for you now, but man, he's getting really mad and he's going to come back and split the eastern skies and just start blowing people up with lightning bolts and, and he's going to kill two-thirds of the earth and everybody's in trouble. And you go, well, that's really hard to marry those two ideas. And you bet it's really hard to marry those two ideas. And if you've sat under that last one very long, you don't believe grace preachers. So they're a false doctrine. When they get up here and go, God's not mad at you, God loves you, they elbow each other and go, look at this charlatan. Has he been watching the news? We're on the brink of a world war. You don't tell me this ain't Armageddon. And so as I begin to investi investigate that, begin to land on what I think is a firm reality that Jesus knew what he was talking about, that he was looking at, the last, at a generation that was going to see the end of an age and that the New Testament writers were writing about the end of that age and the kingdom began to become a reality to me, not somewhere I'm going, but something I can participate in kind of move past some of that. I don't get up here every week and talk about end times or eschatology. You don't feel like you have to. Keep, mo keep repeating the finished work, keep repeating God's grace. But I still struggle with why are we so enamored of a lot of the physicalities of end times. We, we need to see a literal Jesus ride a literal horse, come back in the literal eastern skies, bring people out of literal graves, raise up a literal church, leave literal clothes on the ground, give them a literal new body, raise them into a literal sky, take them away to a literal marriage supper of the Lamb around a cosmic table. I know I'm being funny, but I'm being dead serious. I preached and believed all of these, and there's still people who write books on them right now, stand up and give seminars. We go sit around a big table for seven years where we eat the greatest food we've ever ate in our life, only to have Jesus compile us all back as one big army and come back 
back with him on the earth and fight the world's greatest war in which he crushes and destroys most of the people left on the earth that have been getting saved by sacrificing lambs at a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem for about the last seven years. And then he crushes the Antichrist. He comes back and he reigns on the earth. And we need all of that in a physical sense. And I've wrestled so many times with why are we obsessed with that? Because I don't think we believe Jesus when he said the kingdom doesn't come with observation. We think it does. And that's why we were really quick to embrace theologies where everything happened literally. Because by God, the kingdoms of the earth are stuff you can see. And if you can see the kingdoms of the earth, you got to be able to see the kingdoms of God. And so we heard prophecies that had literal stuff happening and we ran to that. We, we, we flocked to the literal interpretations because the literal was tangible. You can get your fingers on that. You can hear it. You can smell it. You can see it. You can feel it. It's, an, it's a renewed 2.0 obsession with the formulas of Judaism. It's a replay of the book of Hebrews. We've taken that which is the better covenant built on better promises and we've mixed it with temple sacrifice, natural priesthoods, tithes, priest robes, bells, incense, lamb's blood, the smell of a burnt altar, the sight of a glorious temple, the gold splashing in the sun off the sunrise over the horizon, and the tangibleness of that gives us this sense of reconnecting to our forebears. I think it was also a big motivation in some of my Pentecostal and charismatic heritage because in charismatic heritage, you had a lot of tangiblenesses, vocalness, stuff you could feel, stuff you could almost taste and smell and touch and definitely hear. And none of it's wrong, but we would kind of turn to it like we had really found the real Lord because I even grew up hearing stuff like, I wouldn't want a salvation I couldn't feel. I wouldn't want a Holy Ghost I couldn't feel. I wouldn't want to be in this place if I couldn't touch him tonight, if I couldn't feel him tonight. And I don't have any problem with feeling and emotion. My God, who would have a problem with feeling good and excited? But to build large chunks of our theology off of it, to me, is a rejection wholesale of the kingdom does not come with observation. If they say to you, see here or see there, he says, don't believe them because the kingdom of God's in the middle of you. It's not just something you grab hold of. It's in you. It's in your midst. Whether you feel it or not, that's the key. That's where it really gets its life. Because now I don't have to feel it. I know it. Feeling it's great, wonderful. Won't always feel it. But I know I am who I am, whether I feel it or not. So I got to believe that some of our eschatologies were framed around the desire to have these things literal. And I I don't want to... Every time you get into this, people want to know if there's going to be the, what is going to happen literally in the future. And I say, I literally don't know because I literally haven't been to the future, but I do believe in Jesus. And what I know Jesus said is the kingdom doesn't come with observation. It's in the midst. So, and then he told me to pray like this, thy kingdom come and thy will be done here as it already is being done there. And who gets to pray that? Me. Why? Because I'm participating in that. Because I'm not just looking for it. I'm in it. Paul said it this way. Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness 
and conveyed or transferred in the Greek, transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Where are you now? This is Colossae, man. This is AD 56. Paul goes, we are in the kingdom of his love. Not when we die. We're already there. I came out of darkness. I came into light. I'm in Christ. I'm in the kingdom of his love. And that is where we live. We, in that next screen, are in, and I call it invisible. What other word am I going to use? The kingdom doesn't come with observations in your midst. Just because it's invisible doesn't mean it's not real. It's what we said Sunday. There's more than meets the eye. We don't think just in the temporal, but in the eternal. We're in the invisible kingdom of his love and are expected to live out of that love. We are the light. It stands in contrast to the ways of darkness because we're not in the kingdom of darkness. We live in this world. When we make that old statement, we're in it, not of it, that's what we mean. We're in it, but we're not produced by it. We've been transferred into a new kingdom, the kingdom of his son. So how's this thing going to end? <laughs> how's this all going to go down? I don't know. Sorry for, to disappoint you. I don't know. I do know a couple of things. I mean, if I trust the Bible, right? Um, I know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. I'm pretty excited about that. I believe if it's the kingdom of his love that's spreading, love wins. And I don't believe that love tries. And then at the 11th hour, God gives up and acts like he's a dictator who has access to all the armies of the earth. And that's how we've preached God. Grace works, grace works, grace works, grace works. But you better get right with God because there's coming a day when it'll stop working. And you know what we're saying? There's coming a day when God will decide that he can't win the world through loving them. So he'll act as if he is the Satan. And he'll pick up the instruments of the earth and he'll destroy his own people with them. Not his own people because, you know, he's not going to destroy you. I mean, because, you know, you've got it right, but everybody else. But how will he do it? He'll pick up the instruments and he'll do it exactly the way that the world does it. And what we are saying is, is that we are in the kingdom of his love until he decides that he's done with the love bit and then he removes us so that his true fury, the real God, can stand up. And this is why we get so excited about thinking he's the lion at the end of the Bible. Because we want the lion to roar. And you know, my, you know my story to you on that. There is no such thing. He's a lion in title and he's a bleeding lamb. Every time you turn around to try to see the lion to get your eyeballs on it, all you see is a lamb freshly slain keeps popping up over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in the book of Revelation because God wants you to know nothing's changed. I won at Calvary, my robes drenched in blood. And how many of us saw Jesus at the end of Revelation riding on that horse with his robes drenched in blood? And we went, oh, that's because he's killed everybody. Only to realize that the robes drenched in blood are because the lamb is freshly slain. And the blood of his enemies was the blood he bled out at Calvary. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Wow. Well, that's the kingdom. I believe in it. I believe that wins. So every knee bows, every tongue confesses, I think loves how it happens. I don't know how God gets us there. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I'm a follower of a resurrected Jesus. The resurrected Jesus keeps walking out in front of us. 
Here's something else I know that the ancients have been holding on to from at least the book of Habakkuk. And we're still holding on to it. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14. The earth, you can take this to the bank as far as I'm concerned. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When people ask me how it's all going to end, this is the verse I quote. Because this is the best it gets as far as I'm concerned. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I got news for you. The earth is already full of the glory of the Lord. Isaiah said, the earth is full of the glory of the Lord. <laughs> and his train fills the temple. And he is high and lifted up. That's Isaiah chapter 6. The earth is already full of the glory, but the earth is not full of the knowledge of the glory. And we're getting there. And I'm believing it. And I don't have any idea how we do it. And I think Habakkuk was a little disappointed too. See, this is Habakkuk chapter 2. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I think he gets to the end of the book and he goes, man, when is this going to happen? He has that little nagging feeling inside like he might be wrong. You know, that thing that goes, mm, I don't know. Does God really win like this? And then God bless Habakkuk. Because look at how he closes the book. Habakkuk 3.17. I'm going to read this slowly. I want you to let this soak in. All right? Though the fig tree may not blossom, though there's no fruit on the vines, the labor of the olive tree may fail, and the fields yield no fruit, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there's no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. That's how he ends the book. Because he's already had a vision where the earth is full of the glory of the Lord as the knowledge, is covered, knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And he goes, but it sure don't look like it. Because as far as I'm concerned, figs aren't working, fruit's not working, olives not working, fields don't work, flocks dying, no herd in the stalls, all things are going to hell in a handbasket. This isn't going to work. Hmm, no, yet will I rejoice in the covenant God God of my salvation. I will not find my joy based on the fact that I got fig trees, fruit trees, labors, fields, flocks, herds. My joy doesn't lie in any of those things being successful. He goes, my joy is in the God of my salvation. Give us that church. Church, let's be that people. Shouldn't we be that people since we have Jesus? I mean, you following Jesus, shouldn't that be us? We go, ah, that other stuff's just stuff. Yet I will rejoice in the permanence of a Jehovah God, covenant-keeping God covenant-keeping God. Let's jump back to the prayer. We're going to land. I know it looks like a shifting of gears, and of course this could have been next Tuesday night, but I prayed about that, and I just didn't want to spend the week on it. I just wanted to say a couple of things that I hope we can land on with it tonight, and then we're going to just sum up this prayer. And then we're going to, we are going to give you another Lord's Prayer next week, but we're going to take care of this one tonight. Give us this day our daily bread, Matthew 6, 11. This is not a prayer that denies God is able to perpetuate our bread. Some have kicked out the Lord's prayer because they say we don't live on daily bread. That's manna. Since we don't live on manna, we don't have to pray and ask God for our daily bread. This prayer is not asking God to give me my bread every day. We don't live on manna. We are producers. The manna dried up three days into the promised land because God doesn't want to give you manna in a promised land. He wants you to grow your crop. He wants you to be entrepreneurial. He wants you to be a producer. But what this does is acknowledge that God's the provider. 
And once again, it's a spiritual formation. Form us into a people who see what we have, whatever we have, as a blessing. Form us into a Habakkuk 3 people. A people that say, even if the fruit doesn't work, even if the fields are empty, even if the flocks are all dead, yet will I rejoice in the God of my salvation. You give me whatever it is I have, Father. You give me whatever it is I have. And here's how a Jewish mind would have heard this prayer. Proverbs 30. This is in their this is a, a proverb of Israel from the 30th chapter, the 7th, 8th, and 9th verses. Two things I request of you, deprive me not before I die. Here's what they are. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. He leaves that alone. He never even qualifies that. Basically because who doesn't want to live in that? This is like you don't even need to explain it. May there be falsehood and lies not affect me. But this is the biggie. Give me neither poverty nor riches. You've never heard an American pray this next this line right here. <laughs> Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me. Look at this ninth verse. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. He goes, I don't want to be full lest I don't need you anymore. And I don't want to be empty lest I become a thief. Give me what I need to keep me where you need me. That's the proverb. And Jesus goes, give us this day our daily bread. What is it I need for today? That's what I trust the Lord for. I didn't tell you to go pray. Don't make me rich. Don't make me poverty. If you need to pray that, pray that. But put that in the mindset of someone hearing Jesus's prayer. Give me what I need today. That's my allotment. Let's read this prayer again and we'll stop here. In this manner, therefore pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I hope after these two weeks, these two phrases, collective phrases, have some punch to them now. You pray this prayer. And then maybe this one as well. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. My goal next week is to cover that last part of the Lord's Prayer about the debt and the debtors lead us not into testing or temptation. A lot of good stuff there. I think some misunderstood stuff there as well. We want to dig in next week uh, and check it out. But I hope, I hope that the Lord's Prayer is taking a life in you. That when you don't know what to pray, say your prayers. One of them might be this one. And you'll, you'll have some ideas behind that prayer. And I think you'll even, if you let it inform you and form you, that's what prayer is trying to do, then it might even take you down some of these roads we've talked about. And a few that the Holy Spirit will show you as well that you can pray about when you go through it. Let's, let's close this with prayer. And I know we've read the Lord's Prayer together tonight. But just let's talk to him about what it means for the kingdom to come within us, not just to the earth, but through me. Father, thank you that the kingdom is not with observation, but that the kingdom is something that comes into and through and out of all of us. If that be true, and I think it is because you said that it's not what we can see, but it's in our midst, and it's with the Spirit of the Lord, then Lord, that means it can affect the way I treat my neighbor, and it can affect the way I live in the world, and it can affect the way I function on this earth and I could be light instead of darkness. And if that's the case, form me so that your kingdom can come out of my mouth and out of my 
love and out of my hands and what I touch and what I'm near. That your kingdom can become a reality. Thank you. Show us what that looks like as we pay attention and as we are formed in your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.